If you don't have something that really is meaningful in your life, then drama becomes your go-to. That's true. I was raised in a deep Southern Baptist mindset where we're taught to have fear, deep fear of anything that's different from Christianity, especially things like meditation or Buddhism that supposedly can lead you astray and open you up to all these bad things. If oh you yeah, meditate, the devil, right? devil yeah, gets in. The devil is going to get you if you meditate. So they're absolutely right about that. By the way, I mean, <laughs> you meet the devil when you meditate. But the yeah. thing is. Hey, sober people and sober adjacent people. Welcome to I Have 12 Questions. I'm Amanda Patton, your host, a leading expert on nothing. However, I am in recovery and I love it so much so that I launched this podcast where we get to talk to people who are trudging the road to happy freaking destiny across all the different ways that people get there. So while this is definitely through the lens of recovery and sobriety, the stories and the themes that we'll be covering are universally human. So love, loss, grief, excitement, parenting, outside issues, purpose, God stuff, whatever. In the words of the great Ted Lasso by way of Walt Whitman, I want to be curious, not judgmental. So like I said, we'll be talking to people in recovery. We're going to be talking to experts and practitioners who help those people along their path in recovery. And we're just really excited to hear people tell their stories and to be inspired by them and to create a community of support for everybody in recovery and people who know and love people who struggle with addiction issues and whatnot. So anyways, we're so glad you're here and thanks for listening. Hey listeners, just a quick disclaimer before we get into the interview. These episodes may contain adult language and subject matter that's not appropriate for all audiences. Also, we are not doctors or psychiatrists, so what we share on these episodes is certainly not to be considered medical or psychological advice, just our own personal experiences, which we hope will be helpful to others on a similar quest. So that's it, and thanks for listening. Okay. Hey, Sober Family and our entire listener community. We have a great show today, and I really cannot wait to get into our conversation with Kevin Griffin. He is our guest. He is a Buddhist uh, author, teacher, and leader in the mindful recovery movement. And um, I read one of his, his books a few years ago on a, on a flight, and um, I've got it still to this day dog-eared and highlighted, and I, I reference it quite a bit. Um, for a lot of different reasons and situations. And um, it was expansive for me in many ways and continues to be. And it was called One Breath at a Time, Buddhism in the 12 Steps, as well as Buddhism in the 12 Steps Daily Reflections, which is more of that, you know, those daily readers that a lot of us are used to, which offers teachings for every day of the year uh, to support your recovery, whatever that looks like. And so um, daily reflection, as we know, is at the heart of Buddhist practice and also 12-step, you know, recovery programs. Um, So I would say, and we'll hear what Kevin thinks about it, but I would say that regardless of your spiritual leanings, if you even have any, um, these these reader, this daily reader and all of his works actually um, apply, you know. So Kevin's authored many books, too many to list right now, but I will put a link in the show notes so that you guys can peruse that content later if you would like. Um, and you can also find out more about Kevin and his work and his Dharma talks and all the things he has going on at kevingriffin.net. Um, that will be in the show notes as well. So without further ado, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. So, um, let's start with an icebreaker. And I know that my musician guests sometimes, you know, don't love this question because it's, it's probably like asking who your favorite child is, but, um, if your life had a theme song, what would it be? Uh, I don't know. Purple haze. It <laughs> <laughs> starts with a flatted fifth octave flatted fifth, which is called sometimes called the devil's tone. So, uh, Oh, wow. There you go. Nice. No, I, I mean, that's just, you know, a song that comes <laughs> to mind. I, my life had a theme song. Yeah, God knows. It, you know, it would keep changing probably. Yeah, right. You get, 
you get bored with hearing the same song every day. It's true. You get bored if your life stays the same too, if we're not evolving. So I love I'll that. One, one other one, Miles Davis, Kind of Blue. So go, oh. listen, go listen to that album. It's the greatest album of music ever made. Quincy yeah. Jones listens to it every morning, he says. Oh, so. wow. Good to know. Great tips. Right. Well, hey, don't get me started on music, Amanda, because we'll never get around to Buddhism. <laughs> I know. Uh, how? When did you get sober? Let's kind of get into it that 1985, way. 1985, June 7th, 1985. Or that might have been June 8th, but nobody knows. <laughs> but it was 1985. We know that. Well, and if if I don't know who all in my audience will have read One Breath at a Time, um, and it's very, you know, applicable and tactical in a lot of ways on maybe how to like shift perspectives and look at things in different ways, but it also shares a a tremendous amount of your personal story. Um, you know, how everything started, how everything uh, led up to your recovery when all of that happened. So if you haven't, um, read this book, I, I definitely, um, recommend it, but I don't want to assume that the, that the listeners know your story. So what did life look like for you when you arrived at, you know, I don't know if you want to call it rock bottom or, or just that moment where you just knew something was going to have to change. Paint us a picture of what your life was like. Yeah, I actually think that, so I got sober in 85, but I actually think I hit bottom in 1982 and I had, but I was below bottom and I had to get up to a bottom right? because I was living on the street and just, uh, you know, it was just survival mode at which point you can't even think about, you know, sobriety. But when I got sober, you know, I was a, you know, struggling musician and really doing very poorly. I had, I had been much closer to success previously. So I'd kind of gone off the rails with that. Uh, I was in a really, uncomfortable relationship, romantic relationship in, in which I was really not, uh, I didn't have a lot of integrity around that. Uh, you know, I, I was six months before this girlfriend had suggested maybe I had a problem with alcohol. So I stopped drinking for a week and went back to smoking pot every day and then said, screw it. And so that that six months was really a run-up of, of, you know, the cycles of drinking and using that yeah. uh, many of us go through. I was certainly kind of a periodic drunk in the sense that I didn't get drunk every time I drank. But, but when I did, I, you know, blacked out. And, and so, so it was like one last attempt to, like, get my drinking together, you know, control my drinking and using and along with nothing is progressing in my life. My life isn't getting anywhere. And I'm now 35 years old and, you know, my musical career is on the skids and it's like, and, and I had tried a lot of other things, including Buddhism. I had done a lot of, as, as one breath at a time tells the story, I had, I had been practicing meditation for several years and been on some long meditation retreats that I Mm -hmm. thought would fix me and, and, you know, followed a guru who I thought would fix me and nothing fixed me, you know? And so it was like the last door in the hallway and it was marked AA. And I was like, I I don't want it. This isn't going to help. What's the point of this? My problem isn't drinking. It's my problem is, and then I had a list of what were my (laughs) problems, you know, that I'm not yeah. a rock and roll star, that I'm with the wrong woman, that, uh, you know, I'm not enlightened. And, uh, and so it just was like, all right, screw it. Like there's not, I've tried everything else, you know. I've had my ast- astrological chart read several times, you know, just <laughs> like, and so it was like, all right, I'll do this, you know. And, but that day, somehow the night before it, you know, I, well, the night before the band that I had thrown together that week got fired from a gig and it was very humiliating. And, and it, I just somehow, I don't know when, 
whether I was asleep or awake, somehow I made a decision that I had to, that I was going to stop drinking and using. And when I woke up that day, it was just over. And I'm very fortunate in that regard because I didn't relapse after that. Although you could say that my previous, you know, 20 years was one relapse after another. But at that point, once I made that decision, I, I didn't relapse anymore. And I felt a great burden lifted. I was very happy that day, which is very strange, you know, right? Um, to just kind of wake up and be like, oh, this is great. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't even really go to AA right away. I knew about AA. I had a, a friend who was, you know, a couple years sober and had a musician friend who had sort of allowed me to imagine that, oh, being a sober musician could be okay. And, but uh, it, I had to kind of circle around AA uh, and really for a year. I mean, I went to meetings, but it, it took me a year before I joined the program fully. Right. But somehow yeah. I didn't drink. You know? So because I, I had a strong spiritual foundation. You know, once I yes. got sober, it was like all that work I had done was there to support me. It just, it wasn't what I needed to get sober or it wasn't, you know, it wasn't sobriety itself, but it was a foundation for sobriety once I made that choice. Uh, somewhat of an odd path, but, I, but I've discovered over the years now of working with people in recovery that a lot of people have odd pathways to sobriety, right? It's not like one, you know, typical story. And many people have a spiritual practice before they get sober. Anyway, I've gone on longer than No, that's, that's great. Required. And that's the reason I launched this podcast, because when I got sober, AA was, it, it was the only thing I knew about other than treatment. And, you know, it's like, you just, you go to AA, you go to meetings, you do the thing, which is fine. And it's, it's the reason I got and have stayed sober. But nowadays there are just recovery dharma and she recovers and just, and all these wonderful options. Um, and, you know, a lot of us come in having issues with maybe organized religion or maybe the, the God that we were raised with and this and that. And it's so sad when you see people leave um, because of something like that. So knowing that this, you know, the, the literature talks about being spiritual and, and, broad and roomy and all inclusive and all this kind of thing, as long as you're seeking, um, whatever that means. And so I loved this idea of spaciousness and authors like yourself, who for me, I needed the bridge and that's what you gave the bridge between AA and Buddhism. It's hard to make that leap, um, for me anyway, unless somebody kind of spells it out, which is exactly what you did. And I, I appreciate it so much. What, what do you do? What's something really simple that you do every single day that helps you stay grounded and balanced? Um, which I would argue is a huge foundational support for recovery, um, that like a newcomer could pick up starting immediately, somebody with 20 years. What, what's that one thing that you, you have to do, you need to do on a daily basis? Well, no shock. I meditate every morning. Right. <laughs> and and that can but that can look like a lot of different things that a lot of people have this image of what meditation looks like and what it's supposed to be like. And really what I do is I sit down before my day gets away from me, so really before breakfast, um, I sit down and I'm quiet for a while. And it, and when I say quiet, I mean I don't talk or you know read or listen to anything. I don't mean that I don't think. My mind wanders, maybe you know, maybe the whole time. I mean it, but it's the just sort of sitting and letting everything settle. For and for me, you know, as a you know professional meditator, you know, I, I'll meditate for forty five minutes. Or you know, I mean, this morning it was forty minutes because just the timing of my day. So anywhere from thirty to minutes to an hour, I sit still, 
And, and yeah, I have practices. They're pretty simple. Um, but it's the, it's the just sitting and letting everything settle because that, it does a lot of the work of the 12 steps. It, uh, first of all, it's kind of like an, I call the meditative inventory. Like what shows up mm-hmm. when I'm quiet is very revealing. You know, it'll be things that I'm worried about, mistakes that I made that need to be solved something I forgot that I really some person that I forgot or some thing that I forgot that I wanted to do or or some insight that oh I'd love to write about this or you know and and so things show up and I'm not trying to shut down my mind it's about I'm trying to have a different relationship to my thoughts so that I'm not just on a train of thoughts that I am letting go of thoughts as they come and go. But when there's something helpful or wise or feels like, I don't think about this guidance, but you could, that shows up, I, I, I allow it and I reflect on it. And so it's that quiet time that's so important. And I, I think when you start your day, you know, just running, like I, I had a great friend, Rick, uh, from my home group in, in Venice Beach, where I got sober, uh, who used to say, my alcoholic brain wakes up five minutes before I do. <laughs> and it's like, you know, you're already caught in your stuff. And it, so, I mean, that's kind of how I am. And so I need to start by quieting down and taking time. But it doesn't have to be 45 minutes. It can be five minutes. You know? Yeah. I love that. I love that because it's, um, for me, and I don't know if it's alcoholism or just part of my brain chemistry. And I think a lot of people, maybe societal conditioning, where you think that every thought require some type of action. Or if I remember the thing I forgot, I jump up out of my meditation, go write it down somewhere. It's, it's hard for me to sit with thoughts without immediately attaching some type of, you know, to do thing. And sometimes like you're saying, I just need to be able to change my relationship with my thoughts. And unless I sit still, um, and for me, anything longer than five minutes in meditation, I, I have to use, I, I choose to use something like insight timer to kind of, right. but that sometimes feeds that input junkie tendency. It can, yes. Feeding, because sitting in a complete silence, let's just say it, it's uncomfortable until it becomes something now I kind of look forward to it, but if I have a lot going on in my life or I'm bothered by something or I'm going through something, that silence becomes uncomfortable again. But to your point, it reveals really important things. Yeah. And, and I think that, I mean, first of all, I think it is helpful to have some guidance and, but it's what I think is a a wise approach is to learn the guidance and internalize it. So you, you sort of have a structure that you use in the beginning of your meditation, at least where you're just repeating some phrases to yourself or you're doing a little mantra like thing, or just even saying in out with your breath, you know, but then learning to, I mean, I, I love that you talked about, you know, how thoughts lead to actions because that's like the law of karma and how we, how we wind up caught up in our lives and, and caught up in things that we don't really want to do because we haven't taken any space between the thought and the action. So when we sit still and don't act, it trains us to not be so reactive and we become more capable of just, oh, here's this feeling, here's this thought, here's this impulse. Let me take a moment and see whether it is the next right thing, because there's mm-hmm. that frame. 
have in the 12 step world, do the next right thing. But if you don't take time to reflect, you don't know whether it's the right thing or not. Right. You know? Right. It, otherwise it's that reflex that we've become accustomed to, to acting on. And we also hear a lot of pause when agitated, which is, is that similar training of, of taking that breath and that pause and having some type of buffer between the thought and the action. And then to your point, once you've sat with it, some things do require action on my part. You know, if, if I need to go make an amends or I need to return that phone call, but a lot of it is just chatter. It doesn't, it doesn't, instruct me to do anything. And I've had meditation teachers over the years where they say to pick, you know, envision yourself picking up the top of your head and you're just kind of looking in there. It's really, you're, you're really just observing. And sometimes when I lift the lid, I'm like, wow, <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot going on in there. And there's, that is directly tied to my anxiety. If I allow all those thoughts to make me feel compelled to take some type of action because like your friend said, my brain wakes up before I do. So there are days when I wake up in a state of panic for really no reason at all. Um, it's just because my yeah. brain has already started its day. Um, and that can, I can either feed that anxiety by running around trying to get a bunch of stuff done or I can sit still. Uh, but it's, it's not always easy. So you had an interview with Tammy Simon um, insights at the edge where it was called not too unhappy. And it was in your part, I mean, sorry, it was in part your view about expectations and how sometimes that can be the culprit, um, maybe of why we feel discontented or, or different things. I know there's a lot of roots in Buddhism around this type of thing as well. Um, how do we apply this perspective shift to our sobriety? Cause you also, in that interview mentioned, um, the bliss of blamelessness. And so there's a lot of this feeling of, of detachment and dropping expectations and letting go of that urge to, to blame. But how do we take that and apply it to our day-to-day -day recovery? Well, I think the starting point has to be observing your own thoughts, you know, and, and this is, of course, part of mindfulness. And it's, it's again, why it's a misunderstanding to say, I'm going to meditate and stop thinking because mm -hmm. stopping thinking isn't really that helpful. It's pleasant, <laughs> but <laughs> it doesn't very much. Right. So, so the, What's helpful is a, is a combination of two things. One is observing what's in the mind from a kind of detached perspective, just like asking yourself what you're thinking. And the other thing then is having some framework, and this is where Buddhism really is helpful, a framework for understanding what shows up in the mind. So a good example of this is that the Buddha talks about the five hindrances that get, I mean, in the way of meditation, but we can see that they get in the way of life, the hindrance of craving, the hindrance of desire or aversion, like, and resentment and the, the hindrance of sleepiness, laziness, the hindrances of restlessness and anxiety, and the hindrance of doubt. And so, you know, I write about these in practically every one of my books, because they're just kind of key to letting go of these destructive impulses. And, and so when you start to watch your mind and use the framework of the five hindrances to understand what's going on, it's first of all, taking it out of the idea that this is me and starting to just see like, this is just what minds do. Everybody is afflicted with the five hindrances. It's not personal. So right. that's helpful for me because then I'm not like adding to the problem. Like I feel bad and I feel bad about feeling bad. <laughs> you know, that's they call the second arrow. So, but then there's, we start to see like, okay, this thought or this feeling or this impulse that's going on, I can, I can see where it's leading. I can see that it's, oh, I'm having a resentment or I'm having a craving or 
or I'm having this anxiety. And it's not me. It's just this thing that's arising. So an expectation is another thing that can show up in your mind. Oh, I'm expecting something. Well, if I understand reality, I know that expecting is thinking something that's going to happen in the future. And I have no control over what happens in the future. I only have control over what happens right now. And and even that control is limited, right? But I have some control. So if I want something to happen and I'm hoping for something to happen, I take the steps right now, which is like, you know, that's sobriety 101 as well. And it's something that I totally didn't understand because before I got sober, because I was always projecting out, oh, you know, this is going to happen in my life and that's going to happen. And, I, you know, I hope this happened, you know, but I wasn't doing the things like how do you, sh- you know, showing up today and. And of course, step three is pointing to the idea that instead of getting into expectations, just do what you can do now and then let go of the results. And it turns out, as we know, that a lot of times the results are much better than we could have hoped for. I mean, my life now is much better than it would have been if I'd have become a rock star because there's nothing worse than an over-the-hill old rock star, whereas whereas over-the-hill old meditation teachers are considered to be wise and, you know, and people love them, you know, so, you know, so, yeah, I mean, just like that, that idea of just separating out from the future and just what's going on right now, what can I do right now, I don't know what's going to be in the future, and any expectations are just setting me up for disappointment. That's very... The bliss of blamelessness is another thing, actually, altogether, which is really just taking joy in the fact that you're not doing that stuff anymore. Yeah. And that, like, oh, when I wake up in the morning, I remember going to bed at night. <laughs> and I don't wake up in the morning in bed with somebody that I don't remember going to bed with the night, you know, and it's, it's just like, wow, the simplicity of like stepping outside and being sober and like, you know, hearing birds and enjoying life and not having this cloud of, of, uh, regret and shame and guilt hanging over you and fear. Like when a cop pulls me over now, I'm not afraid I'm going to get stopped for a DUI, you know, or that he's going to find drugs in the car like they did when I was 19. You know, that uh, I, I, it's just like, oh, I'm going to get a ticket. This sucks, you know, but, right. that's, but that's, that's it. a lot better. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, do you think, and I know that I, I feel like I know the answer instinctively, but um do you think that people benefit or can benefit from your writing, writing and guidance if they aren't a true Buddhist uh, practitioner? Because I was a little bit intimidated because I was like, well, I, I have Buddhist stuff all over my house. It's always really appealed to me. It makes me feel very peaceful. I've been to many, you know, um, temples and Zen classes and all. So I'm a student of the philosophy Absolutely. And I agree with it. And a lot, it aligns with my insides much better than any other, you know, uh, whatever spiritual approach, but I view it not as a religion and more as a philosophy, whereas other people really do partake in that they Sanskrit and they really understand and they study and they do all the rituals. Um, so I almost, I didn't, I felt like a poser almost, or like, Oh, I don't know if I can, uh, claim this because I'm not a, I'm not a real Buddhist. I just like the philosophy. So what, what are your thoughts about that? Um, you know, if people have that same fear or hang up about it. Yeah, I I think it's an important question. I, I actually, I shy away from the label of Buddhist. Okay. It's which, you know, other people call me a Buddhist, (laughs) (laughs) but like I'd rather be an alcoholic than a Buddhist kind of because I don't, you know, there's all this 
baggage and expectations, you know, labels that people think like, oh, a Buddhist does this and a Buddhist does that. It's like, really? Okay, well, if you say so. But so there's a bunch of things that people consider to be Buddhist that I that that are not me. Um, And so, you know, over the years, I grew I've grown more and more kind of like I just want to have my life and then, you know, be happy and be of service. And, um, you know, I, I love to study the Dharma, but, um, you know, I don't want to like try to become something. Right. Yes. And so, but that doesn't mean that I'm not rigorously devoted to certain aspects of the dharma so you know this is a very like western thing too because you know to be a buddhist if you were you know an asian you know a thai or burmese person who was raised as a buddhist you would be a buddhist you know by birth and by sort of and and that's that's more like a buddhist to me you know right but but most of the people in Asia don't meditate and they don't study Buddhism the way I do. So we have these completely different sort of models for what even a Buddhist is. You know? right. uh, I mean, there's a monastery in Northern California that I visit. And on the, on these sort of festival days, all the like, uh, traditional Buddhists, you know, Thai and other Asian Buddhists show up for the event. And they're all about bowing and chanting and offering food and offering money. But they're not there when it when you go on the silent retreat with the monks, it's all Westerners. <laughs> so uh, you know, so what's important to me is meditation and understanding the teachings. Um, and, and so the, the, the rest of it, ritual, I don't care for ritual. You yeah. know, I, I, I do very little ritual uh, and even less now than I did when I was younger. I just, like, it just doesn't work for me particularly. I'm not interested in it. So, um, so yeah, I, it's, it's not important to, to, uh, I mean, to me, it's not. People can do what they want to do. I mean, a lot, right. a lot of people, a lot of Westerners are drawn to ritual and they love, like Tibetan Buddhism, very ritualized and it's got sort of a lot of magical stuff going on and people are very drawn to that. And that's, that's great. I mean, if, if that, you know, touches you and inspires you, absolutely, you know, follow it. But, but if you're interested in like, oh, I'd like to get some of the things out of Buddhism that you're kind of talking about, but I don't want to like have to change my wardrobe in order to do so and my haircut, you know, um, that's absolutely fine. You know, Um, take what you need and leave the rest. The thing I, I would discourage though, is just thinking that by reading a book, you're going to, it really get the benefits of practice because reading comes after practice. If you go to a, a meditation group, like I taught a group last night, you meditate first and then there's a teaching. And the, t- the reason we do that is because the, the true experience and the, the real insight comes in the meditation practice. The teachings just illuminate the experience. And I've had this, this particular experience many times, which is I've been on a, I've gone on many retreats and, but, you know, particularly early on in my practice, I did some long retreats and they were great, but I didn't really understand what was happening on the retreats until later on, I would read a book and it would say something and I would be like, Oh, now I understand. It it was like, I put it together. Right. and the Buddha t- talks about this. He talks. He says that our the insight arises in in two parts: vision and knowledge. The vision is the meditation experience that you have, and then the knowledge is the understanding of the experience. Because meditation, 
the insight in meditation is a nonverbal experience. It's just something that happens, like you're sitting and you realize, oh, I'm thinking about my vacation in Hawaii. And then you feel how that gets you agitated. And then you come back to the breath and you let go of that thought and you feel yourself settle. And when that happens, you may not realize that what you're experiencing is, oh, the thought about Hawaii was craving. And that's this, the truth of the cause of suffering. That's what causes suffering, according to the Buddha. And when I let go of that and feel settled, then I'm letting go of craving. And that's the truth of the end of suffering. So that's the four noble truths that the Buddha talks about. And, but when you're doing it in meditation, it, it, you don't see the signs that say, here's the four noble truths. You know, you're just experiencing this thing. And you learn to let go, right? We learn to let go in meditation. We learn like, oh, when I'm all stirred up and worrying about tomorrow, it feels uncomfortable. And when I catch that and I just let go, ah, oh, it feels better. And that's, you know, that's the, that's the vision. Right. right. And when you read the, about the Four Noble Truths and explain to you, you realize, wow, I was experiencing and having, I could say, an understanding, an intuitive understanding of the Four Noble Truths of how to, of suffering and how it arises and how it ends and, and how the, the benefit of having it end. So uh, that's why it's so important to practice, because you could read that. And like maybe somebody's listening to this and they're going, oh, that makes sense. But you have to ingrain it into your system right. because we're very habituated to stay with the the, the fantasy about a vacation in Hawaii. You know, we're very habituated to be in that. So we have to undermine that habitual thinking by repeatedly letting go. That's what we're training our minds in with meditation is training yourselves to let go. We'll ne- most of us, presumably, will never get to the point where we just completely are able to let go. That would be in total enlightenment. But we can reach a point where we're not the complete victims of the craving. Just right. as, you know, in sobriety, it's not like, oh, we become perfect people. But our lives are vastly improved by letting go of our addictive behavior. I love that because I, um, what you're saying is basically it's the same in 12 steps where you can read the book and work the steps, but if you're not integrating, if you're not experiencing that to, to actually change our behavior and our ways of thinking, you're not really doing it in a meaningful way that's going to benefit you or people around you. And I know in Austin for years, I went to the Zen center and the Shambhala center, and I always loved it because we started with that 20 minutes of silent meditation before anything was said. And then someone would read something from Pema or something from whoever, and then we would share, but it was in the context of recovery. Um, so that you didn't have to be an expert and, and get all of the references per se, but you could absolutely, but it would be weeks or months later when I wasn't feeling really angry in traffic. Um, and, and you would realize that that really quick conversation that happens, this is upsetting me. I feel very annoyed right now. And then there's an awareness of that. And then the awareness of I'm sitting on 35. I have no control over the situation. And then that release. Um, but to your point, it doesn't really make sense until later. And that's why it's something that has to be practiced. It's called a practice for a reason, right? It's got a, um, but it's interesting how it shows up. I've had many moments where my reaction to certain situations shocked me, um, in a good way. Uh (laughs) And I look back and I'm like, that's, that is not at all how I would have wanted to react in the moment, but, but it was because I didn't follow my reflex. I sat there and I let it. Um, and that is all a direct result of, of, um, meditation pause when agitated and also being aware that the reason I'm upset is because I expected someone to behave differently and they didn't. And so, you know, it's not excusing someone else's behavior necessarily. People are going to do what they're going to do, but I have to take ownership of the fact that I, I put an expectation on that and that's why I'm feeling 
you know, that's why I'm suffering. Um, How has your relationship with music or other hobbies and fun things that you like to do, how has that changed in your recovery? Because a lot of people, when we first get sober, we're terrified we will never have fun again. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I'm curious what your hobbies look like now and (laughs) how you how you interact with music and fun and blowing off steam. As far as playing music, it's not my focus anymore. And, and, and I, I've come to understand that that's because for me, that was, it's not that there's anything negative associated with it. It's that for me, music was my work. And I'm not really interested in like jamming <laughs> or fiddling around. If I'm going to play music, it's going to be to write and to rehearse and to perform. And, and that's just not where my life is now. Uh, you know, writing has largely taken the place as a, as a creative activity, as much as I, I still listen to a great deal of music and love music. And, and, uh, you know, I'm reading a book right now about Leon Russell, who is a great musician that I love. And, and, you know, as I'm reading the book, they'll, mentioned some record he was on and I'll go run and like put that on and listen to that. And so, so I I still have a great love of music, but I have to confess that my, my hobby, uh, and I don't normally call it that, but we characterized by that is now golf and my, and my meditation practice and my Dharma practice is very much engaged with that because golf tremendously benefits from mindful mindfulness and and really uh is harmed by the lack of mindfulness right and i've i've actually outlined a book on mindful golf and and yeah and it's interesting too because my ego and competitive nature when I started to play and I actually started to play after taking a, an awakening joy course with my teacher, James Barris. So it, it, it definitely is about having fun. Right. But right. I used to come home in a bad mood cause I would have a bad round. And my wife said to me, you can't come home from playing golf in a bad mood <laughs> because you're playing golf. <laughs> so uh, that was a great lesson. So she's, you know, kind of my guru. And, um, and so, uh, I work actually at, at being happy when I'm playing golf, which isn't right. always easy when I'm right. playing poorly, but it happens that, um, I met a young man who's a, who's a, an aspiring professional golfer last year. And when he found out that I taught mindfulness, he became curious about that. And, and I've been helping him uh, to learn to breathe mindfully on the golf course. And last week we had a, a, a meeting. We hadn't spoken in a long time, and he asked me to, for some help. And um, he then went out and had this tremendous round this week, and he's now in a, he's in a PGA tournament up in Lake Tahoe. Wow. And, and he, he said to me last week, I really need help with my mental game. So I gave him this, this guidance and, um, he's like, I, I mean, I don't want to take credit. For, he's an incredibly talented golfer, but he was saying that his, th- his mind was really getting in the way of his game. And, um, and after, uh, we had this session, he was like, Oh Yeah this is changing everything for me. And he went out and he shot, he had, he had to play his way into this tournament and he wow. won the play in against 56 guys wow. he shot 63. And, uh, and so now he's up in Tahoe and I'm, I'm going to go, if he, if he makes the cut today, I'm going to go up to Tahoe and watch him over the weekend. That is uh, amazing. That's anyway. So a lot of athletes that talk about that, right? Because they, they yeah, train, yeah. train their bodies like crazy. And but then, what about your mind? What about that ability to work with your nerves and to calm it's, yourself? And it's focus? the key that separates 
the successful elite athletes Mm -hmm. from the less successful key athletes is mental. And you see it, Steph Curry, who of course is one of, you know, living in the Bay area, we all love him. He's just this perfect example of somebody whose mind is, is just so clear and, and, you know, and and able to, and resilient. That's incredible. I love that. And it's funny because you talk about how your competitive nature tries to sort of hijack that or even writing. If that's a fun hobby, pastime, you know, outlet for you. But then when you're writing a book, it it has to change, right? Because now it's tied to this, uh, (laughs) this, this product, this outcome, um, which that's got to be difficult. Um, But you're aware of it. It's funny. I'm very fortunate that that doesn't really happen. That's good. I just, I, you know, I I see writing a lot like music, and that's I think being a musician really helps me as a writer because I approach it as this spontaneous, like outpouring mm-hmm. of energy, and and I just follow one thought after another, like one chord after another. And I just, I, I find it exciting. And, and I think it's partly because I really like to be the center of attention. <laughs> so when I'm writing a book, I'm like imagining that people are reading this book and it's like, and I'm saying these things to them and, and nobody can interrupt me. Right. <laughs> and so I just find it kind of gratifying. Um, once it's published, then I get competitive, like how many books am I selling? Right. You know, but, uh, the but other thing, in the process, no. Oh, yeah. What's the no, next one? No, no, go ahead. No, no. What's, what's the next book? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm writing a book about what's the teaching on mindfulness of breathing, actually. And it's a famous sutta called the Anapanasati Sutta, which means mindfulness of breathing. Uh, but, and I've, I've written the first draft and I've given it to two of my monastic teachers for their feedback because I'm, wow. I'm not sure that I've stayed enough within the lines. Well, another thing about your writing too, and maybe this is why you don't attach things to it is because it's really personal, you know, it, it's yeah. very experiential, right? And so it's, yeah. it's your story that can't be right or wrong. Yeah. Um, and it comes through in your books of how, it just resonates because it's actual experience. It's not so much theory. It feels very real and very applicable and and relatable. Um, So, and we were just talking about this a little bit, but sometimes addicts are, you know, we can be, I'll speak for myself. I can be overly analytical, uh, competitive, you know, this activity is only worth my time if I'm going to win or if I'm going to, you know, achieve this thing or that thing. Um, very rarely do I do an activity for the sake of the activity. I, I have a very hard time. And so another part of that analytical nature, though, is looking for loopholes, gotchas, differences. What is your advice to someone who's really struggled with the, the, the spirituality piece of 12-step programs? It was a huge obstacle for me. Um, I am in Texas. We are in the deep south. I was raised in a deep Southern Baptist um, Mm -hmm. mindset where we're taught to have fear, deep fear of anything that's different from Christianity, especially things like meditation or Buddhism that supposedly can lead you astray and open you up to all these bad things. Oh yeah. The devil, devil gets in. The devil is going to get you if you meditate. So they're absolutely right about that, by the way. I mean, (laughs) you meet the devil when you meditate. But the yeah. thing is that, but the thing is like, y- if you don't meditate, the devil is hanging out anyway. You just don't know it. You don't know where it is. That's right. Yeah. So Man, it, that's you, good. It's better to have an eye on the devil. But yeah, to, to meet him in person, how do we, how, what would, how, what would you say are a couple of simple ways or maybe a, a, a better, a fresher perspective um, to help us 
kind of start with a clean slate, maybe leave some old, leave some old beliefs behind, or at least set them down at the door for a minute and just be open to a more spacious existence spiritually. It's a really important question. And, you know, my second book, which, uh, it's out of print right now. I think you can still get a, uh, Kindle version, but uh, it's called The Burning Desire, Dharma God and the Path of Recovery. And I'm, I'm going to retitle it as just Buddhism and the 12 Steps Higher Power. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's what it's about. And and I, and I one of the f- first things I do in the book is talk about the word spirituality and try to make it more accessible. Right. And to think of it uh, not as something exotic, but just yeah. as spiritual in contrast to material. So a spirit, like a spiritual life is an acknowledgement that the material world can't bring authentic happiness and meaning to your life. And so a spiritual life is looking for the non-material things. And And that means it's the life of the heart and the life of the mind. The, the felt experience and and all all of that which is really life it's really the place that life happens right it's where all the all the things that we really care about happen in that realm even though we project out about the the car and the house and the relationship that, that those things never really bring us happiness. That's why right. billionaires aren't happy enough to, you know, they need another billion, to, they think to be happy. So, so the, so that's one thing I try to take a very practical approach to it. I, I have an exercise in my workbook. <laughs> I'm getting to go through all my books. What is some workbook, which is, one where I ask people to go back through their spiritual history to, to understand your own conditioning. So, so if you find yourself resistant to spiritual ideas, come to understand your resistance. Where does it come from? And as you say, you might go back and see that you were wounded or traumatized by religion early on. And then or, you know, maybe like there's a lot of people who have like a guru who harmed them or, a, you know, a priest who harmed them. And so yes. they don't trust those things. So you start to see, oh, well, my beliefs are not founded in like information or logic. They're founded in emotional conditioning and bias that's built up over the years. And so... The idea to me is not to, oh, well, get rid of that and adopt something new. It's to be open to the possibility of something that might be helpful. And and certainly, you know, I just always want to avoid anything that smacks of fundamentalism. And that can be Christian, certainly we know, but it can be buddhist fundamentalism and yep. it can be alcoholics anonymous fundamentalism absolutely you have to work the steps like this your higher power has to be like this your inventory no like just find your own path and fi- and and when i say find your own path i don't mean really mean alone find your people right. <laughs> i was just talking to someone yesterday about like you need to find your people find the meetings where there's people kind of, who are like you who who because, you know, you show up at meetings and it's a meeting where they're all born again Christians and they're going to tell you, you have to accept Jesus Christ as your savior in order to be sober. And you're yeah. going to be like, but no, that doesn't work for me. <laughs> so you got to find a meeting where people are like, you know, find your own higher power. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, maybe somebody whispers something about mindfulness to you after the meeting. And you're like, okay, these are my people. I mean, if you're that person. So, so it really, so uh, uh, I guess another thing is to see just the failure of the approach of just rejecting everything out of hand. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, this part of, uh, part of sobriety, part of recovery, I should say, is really questioning your whole belief system. Right. I mean, I had to do that because 
my belief system about who I was, which is, I think, true for many of us, was really distorted. Mm -hmm. And I had to learn who I was, who I could potentially be. I didn't know that I could be a writer. You know, that never would have occurred to me. So so there is really this like shedding of the skin of our, not just of our addiction, but of our limiting concepts of who we are and what we believe and all of that. And, And that's what, you know, the upheaval of, recovery of of sobriety of getting clean can really open up so many things it can be real it's very difficult obviously to shed a skin but um but it's really an opportunity to to discover a new life for ourselves I love that. First of all, the, that empiric or that practical thing of, it's just a separation. It's a perspective of like what's here in the 3d, what we're touching and buying and doing all the time and versus what we feel. And, um, that's that, that would have really caught my attention because that makes sense to me. That's something that I can, I can understand and grasp and it requires no dogma whatsoever. I don't have to sign off on anything. Right. It's just, that makes a lot of sense, but, um, I think too now I'm in my 10th year of recovery. And I think now it's like, in addition to my all or nothing mind wanted me to believe that I've got to extinguish all this has to go away and we're going to bring this in. But now it's this weird mosaic of all kinds of things, because a lot of the teachings of Jesus, I, I love, and I agree with, and they're in alignment with 12 steps and Buddhism and all kinds of other things. Some of the stuff that went with it, I really don't, care for, uh, personally for me in my life. And so, um, this, uh, this idea that you can believe all of these things simultaneously that align with right. your recovery. I didn't know you could do that. I thought you had to pick mm-hmm. one and do it. Yeah. Everything was monotheistic and it was, it was based on fear and shame and guilt, which my addiction reinforced. So those things really worked well together. And when I started removing some of that, um, and having that spaciousness and then meeting other people who are really happy and calm and balanced. And, and, um, you know, they, maybe they weren't religious at all. I go to secular meetings all the time where there are, you know, atheists, diagnostics, all kinds of people and whatever works for you. So thank you for expanding on that. Cause I, um, I, it's my main reason for having this podcast is to introduce every approach, you know, and you just got to find your people find your meetings, work the program in a way that works for you. Um, I am wondering kind of what's your favorite thing. If you could boil it down to one um, thing, what's your favorite thing about your lifestyle? This life that you live now. I guess maybe the simplicity of it Hmm. Um, and the lack of chaos, (laughs) you know, um, but, and that's a very like sobriety thing. Like, cause I, I kind of loved chaos and complications and, and drama and, um, but I live a, really simple life there's just a few things that i do you know and um yeah so but but i mean i I actually don't think that's the right thing for everybody you know it's just what and you know i'm an older person (laughs) normally i say i'm an old person but i'm just being polite (laughs) now um you know, and as you get older, you know, you do sort of settle into a simpler life. Usually if you don't, you know, it's, I don't know, it could maybe be a mess, but so, so I appreciate that. I don't think it's the right thing for everybody, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that I have the life I have. It's l- like many people with long-term sobriety, I look back and I'm, I'm amazed that things have unfolded the way they have, you know. Did you ever, 
I know I did. And I've heard this story from a lot of people in recovery when they, at some point in early sobriety, I don't know, six months, a year, three months, different for everybody, but you call your sponsor and you're just like, I am so bored. And they're like, that's serenity, my friends. But we're used to that chaos and it feels so comfortable. So the quiet of peace can be very um, off-putting at first. (laughs) You know, I have to say, I not for me, my, you know, within a few days of being sober, I I got in the back of a station wagon and drove from California (laughs) east for, to play gigs, one nighters for like, a, and so it, it was actually pretty fun from the beginning. And, and there was a lot going on and the, the chaos didn't immediately stop. Um, right. So, you know, my, my early years of sobriety, my first decade was really exciting because I, during that time I went back to school and, and, um, you know, started writing and, uh, you know, started, it got serious, more serious about my meditation. It's never been boring for me. It's, it still is not boring. You know, what's interesting though, but, is the but I know what you're talking about, yeah, you know, yeah. people, but it's, I think that's more of a projection that yes. people are afraid it's going to be boring. Yes. I just never found it boring. And what's interesting is I was making new friends and I was really busy in my career and everything was improving and there was a lot of activity and it wasn't, yeah. It, it wasn't boring at all, but I was lacking that chaos. And I'm talking about the kind of chaos that drinking creates, right? Where yeah, yeah. DWIs and arguing with people and having to apologize all the time and missing work or just whatever it looked like. Yeah. That it was the bad chaos that I thought I was missing just because it seemed so normal. I would just get up and go to work and go to a meeting and go home and nothing bad happened. And I couldn't believe it. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's well, weird. If you're, but I think if you're, if you don't have something that really is meaningful in your life, then you, then drama becomes your go-to. That's true. And I mean, that's like kind of, I mean, it's kind of sad, but it's kind of like the, and the, you know, someone who's sort of got, got it all, Mm -hmm. but doesn't really have any purpose, like a yeah. wealthy person who's just sort of d- doesn't have a passion. Uh, I don't know. You know? And, I, and I loved the fa- the acts of service that we do as part of our program. It kind of gives you a starting point. And then you discover all these other ways to be of service in the world. That's a really good place to identify that that passion. Well, I know we're up on time. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to close by reading the daily meditation for today, which is July 21st. Um, cool. And we'll just kind of shut out on, on this. And I wanted to just thank you so much for this conversation yeah. and, and for being here and sharing your experience with us. It really means a lot. Great to meet you, Amanda. Good luck and and good work you're doing. Thank you so much. Okay, so this is from Buddhism in the 12 Steps, uh, Daily Reflections, and it's July 21st, Letting Go of Thoughts, Replacing. Many times, simply by seeing a thought, it disappears. We let it go. But when thoughts are more persistent and distressing, the Buddha offers a set of responses that can help. Over the next few days, we will explore some of them. The first of these responses is called replacing. Here, when we see... For instance, an angry thought, we might replace it with a loving one, an anxious thought with a calming one, a sad one with something uplifting. That might sound simplistic, and in fact, it probably won't be very effective if just done mechanically. There are some other elements to this process that help it to work. First, of course, we must see the thought, bring mindfulness to it, not be swept away. As long as we are not mindful of thinking, it will just go on like a background processor, churning out words and images that keep us under their spell. Secondly, we need to bring awareness to the painful or destructive nature of such thoughts. If we think that our difficult thoughts are useful or meaningful, it will be harder to let them go. Seeing how destructive they are will motivate us to let them go. Further, we have to understand that thoughts are not facts, but simply ideas. We live under the illusion of thoughts reality. It's as though we were in a hypnotic state, simply responding to the orders that appear in our mind. 
When we see through this illusion, it weakens the power of thoughts to keep us under their sway. With this foundation for letting go, when we have a thought of anger and see it clearly, we can intentionally bring loving kindness to mind. With an anxious thought, we might try to bring a broader perspective on what safety really is. In Buddhism, it is Dharma, the truth that is our true protector. And with sad or depressing thoughts, remembering impermanence can help. Just seeing that our present moment mind state is temporary can help us to avoid despair. Today, begin to work with replacing thoughts. Experiment with different strategies to see what works for you. Beautiful. Uh, it was helpful. <laughs> so helpful. I needed to hear that today for sure. Well, thank you again. You're amazing. Okay. Thanks a lot. <laughs>